All right, folks, we're back with another episode of Skirmish Supremacy. And uh, tonight is episode 50, so we are actually coming up on our one-year mark really, really, really soon. Nick would normally say hello, but he is lurking in the background of the control tonight. He is sick as shit. So all he's doing is typing woohoo on the screen. So <laughs> if we do put this up as a video log later on, you'll see that he is here, but uh, he's just not going to say anything. So we can insult him all we want tonight. And uh, for episode 50 tonight, we have... Uh, I'm sorry, real quick here, David. I'm sorry. I don't know why I wanted to call you Danny for a second there. I was looking <laughs> no at the wrong damn screen. This is what happens when I have multiple things open up on my computer. We're a real professional here. This is uh, David McBride. He is with uh, Splintered Light Miniatures. He is actually a local guy. He is based right here in Georgia. Uh, not too far from me. He's actually in Smyrna. Am I correct in that? Yes, Smyrna. Awesome. So how far are you? I got to ask this because one of our listeners works over at Glock. How close are you to Glock? That's a good question. I'm not sure where Glock is. Okay. So for Corey's sake, we're just going to say you're really close by to Glock. I am, I am very near uh, <laughs> South City Kitchen and Mustn Turners, if that helps. Atlanta Road. Okay. So, Corey, if you're listening, there you go. So, David, <laughs> you, you actually are a miniature sculptor in the area. Um, actually, no. I have a small miniature business, and I hire other people to do the sculpting for me. Uh-huh. So, um, so I eventually I'd like to do it, but, but, uh, but right now I just outsource, uh, the sculpting and the molding and the casting. Okay, cool. And you, do you do, you do these for some very specific lines, correct? Uh, yes, yes. I, my main interest is in 15 millimeter and I do mostly, uh, fantasy and, um, dark age historicals. Awesome. And are there specific games that these are being used for? I, I am assuming that you kind of make your stuff generic enough for anybody to use with anything. But do you have any particular games in mind that they should be used for? When I initially started doing it, uh, well, I guess started getting the lines done 13 or 14 years ago and opened up. Um, I'm in my 12th year now. Um, I was playing a lot of Chipco Fantasy Rules Um and uh, but as time's going on, um, my dad has actually written a set of rules that we play a lot of the time called Pride of Lions. Um, with that said, I try to make everything very generic. Um, so I think we have some people, a lot of people that use my figures for hordes of the things or hot. Um, I have a lot of people that um, have been painting them up for 15 millimeter Mantic uh, armies. Uh, what is that? Kings of War. Yes. Um, so, um, and then just a, just a variety of other odds and ends games. Um, I work real closely with Mike Reniger of Rebel Minis, who has a game called Mighty Armies. Uh, and we, we spend a lot of time uh, doing armies and playing that game as well. Nice, nice. So your, your stuff, you, you mentioned that you have, you, you have your game that your dad made called Pride of Lions, but your stuff is getting out everywhere for a lot of people that do 15 millimeter gaming yes absolutely yeah and and we found that a lot of people mix and match lines and um enjoy having the ability to mix different 15 millimeter armies and and play a variety of games with them cool all right awesome so you do i I noticed uh, just kind of go through your website a little bit before we got started tonight that you do mostly 15 18 millimeter um, you do have some 28 millimeter fantasy, and you do actually go into some post-apoc and things like that. 
Yeah, um, the uh, 28 millimeter fantasy was, um, I guess, two or three years into having the business. Um, I didn't really have any big creatures, big giants, or big dragons. And the old uh, Metal Magic line um, had some dragons and giants, and a guy named Johnny Locke uh, had some molds for sale. So I went ahead and bought them and released them as 15, but they're really large dragons and giants. So when I got my own made, I just made it into a 28 millimeter line, which was what they originally intended for. Um, and then, uh, I have a line of 20 millimeter stuff. Um, it really was originally intended to be 15. Bob Ollie, who is a very talented sculptor in the UK, uh, did them and they look fantastic, but his style is just larger. Uh, so they really work better as 20 millimeter than 15 millimeter. Um, yeah. And then the post-apocalyptic stuff was uh, just kind of a lark I did. My brother-in-law released a post-apocalyptic book uh, on Amazon. Um, and so I just did a line of miniatures for the heck of it for that. Nice. So you're supporting your brother-in-law as well. And uh, yes. making the uh, independent rules. So yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about the independent rule side of things. So, I mean, we're going to post up your site and everything in the show notes. And, you know, at the end, we'll give you a chance to, you know, plug the websites, Twitter, Facebook, all that good stuff. But you did mention that you have rule sets that you you like to see people use at these. Um, the one in particular is Pride of Lions. So yes. Tell us a little bit about that. So Pride of Lions initially started as um, a means for us to showcase the miniatures at gaming conventions. Um, and so my dad, sort, who's been gaming since he was in high school, wrote sort of a quirk, quick, dirty set of rules for us just to, to play at conventions. And uh, we liked him so much and people liked him so much that um, we turned him into a full-fledged set of rules. And um, essentially, um, the units are made up of three bases um, of figures. And, and the size of the base doesn't matter. We use 40 by 40 bases. Um, and then just cram the figures on there. And um, each unit has a certain dice value from a D4 all the way up to a D24. Um, and they actually make D24s and D16s, which we didn't know until we started looking. Um, and, we, and we use um, simultaneous movement. So we have order chits that we put down, and uh, each unit moves from most aggressive movements, so charges, rushes, uh, to least aggressive movements, you know, standing still and doing nothing. Um, and, uh, it's, it's fun because you can get a lot of figures on the table, but the games still play, um, in an hour or two. So it's not a huge time commitment, but you can get a lot of figures on the table. Nice. So it looks impressive for anybody that's walking by and seeing it at conventions. Exactly. It's an impressive setup. Exactly. But it's real easy to catch on to it and real easy to play. Okay. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about, about some of the meat of, uh, the system itself? Like, how does it play? You mentioned the simultaneous movement, the, the movement chits. Um, it uses the different kinds of dice. What are the different factions, you know, uh, the game mechanics itself? Um, the, as far as the different factions go, right now, um, a lot of the games we end up playing are with uh, Wildwood, which is sort of a woodland, fawns, centaurs, halflings, wood elves, army. Um and then they uh, will fight the Moonglade, which is dark elves and goblins and orcs. Um, 
Then one of the big factions is the Leonines, which is lion men. Um, and they have a variety of different groups. Um, we have uh, the um, Logris, which is the Romano, essentially fantasy version of Romano-British or the historical Arthur. Um, we've got Undead. And one of the really cool features of the game is my dad came up with a very unique magic system. And so each there's several different types of magic that work in different ways so that necromancers, you know, call upon the dark forces, demonic forces, and there's a chance that they might get eaten up by the forces that they're calling up. So there's always a chance if they push a spell too far, they might explode or something. Um, then shamans have a pool of, of magic that they can use. Um, and then the God fears uh, can, can do prayers and, those can be powerful, but you only get one or two of them a game, depending on how your luck goes. Um, so a variety of magic um, is, is, I think, one of the most unique features of the game. Um, and then as far as the factions, pretty much we've got dark dwarves, we've got um, dwarves, regular dwarves. Um, we've got the Sons of Horus that are uh, fantasy Egyptians, and we're going to actually expand that line this year kind of do a whole Egyptian focus, which should be fun. I, I am definitely looking forward to that one. Those are the ones that caught my eye right off the bat. Yeah, we uh, – um, the fun thing about having a, a business that's a side business is that um, I can pretty much do whatever I want to do, um, and I just hope that enough other people want what I want that uh, I can keep getting new stuff made. And so um, we've got some, some good desert terrain and a good desert fort and a mat that we got from Cigar Box uh, Terrain. Um, and so I was like, you know what, I'm just going to take 2017 and make it about fantasy Egyptians. Um, so um, we've already got the undead, and uh, I just added the Easterners, which would be a good uh, army, the Sons of Osiris. Um, and then we're going to do, you know, Anubis and Os- – uh, um, I'm sorry, Sons of Horus. I'm going to do Anubis and Osiris and Set and then mercenary groups. Um, so it should be a lot of fun. Nice. It almost sounds like you're in, in its own, like, kind of tongue-in-cheek way, resurrecting war gods of Egyptus just in a smaller format. It, you know, it, it probably will end up being a lot like that. Um, what those guys are doing is really cool. Um, and, and that's kind of the fun thing about 15 is taking a lot of the, the fun stuff that's out there in 28 and just tweaking it. Um, of course, we don't want to just outright copy it, but uh, oh, of course not. But there's just a lot of great ideas out there, um, and uh, you know it's always funny when people say, "Hey, I'd love to see this in 28," and I always say, "But it's already there in 28." <laughs> <laughs> Why are you bugging me? Yeah. <laughs> so that's awesome. Yeah. So I, I, you know, looking at the miniatures. They definitely have a lot of detail for a 15 millimeter line. I'm not used to seeing this much detail in 15 mil. So you said that you you get your 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 sculpts and casts from all over. You you must have really been digging to find some of these that look this good. Well, you know, um, it's it's amazing what sculptors have been able to do uh, over the last uh, even the time I've been doing it, but certainly the last 15 to 20 years. Um, the main sculptors I use are Roderick Campbell, who does most of my, he's done, I think, all of my um, historicals, Dark Age historicals. He did the Sons of Osiris. 
Um, and he does amazing stuff. And it's been cool to see him just get better and better over the years. Um, a large part of my stuff has been done by, especially the adventures and dungeon monsters has been done by Theron Betchley, uh, who's in the Northern Virginia area. And again, he's, I just watched him get better and better at it as well. Uh, Ben signs, who is probably a sculptor you've heard of. He does a fair amount for, um, Reaper. I think he did the ghouls for war gods of Egyptus. Um, but he, he does a lot of stuff. Uh, then Bob Ollie. Um, so I've got And Sandy Garrity, um, has done Sandra Garrity has done some stuff for me. Um, she does fantastic dragons. So, uh, so I've got a really talented pool of sculptors who, uh, do stuff for me. That's awesome. Yeah. So, and I noticed that, you know, with everything that you have, you know, just kind of looking through it all here and to be honest with you, I have not had a chance to go through all of it because limited this week, but you have an absolutely insane amount of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. It's a little bit out of control, especially since I don't do my own casting. Um, it's really hard to do, um, product control in terms of stocking because, um, I don't want to have too much. Otherwise I've got thousands of dollars just sitting down in my basement. Um, but then gamers are funny because I might have, you know, two packs of one, um, two packs of one of the codes and it sits there for nine months. And then all of a sudden some guy orders four of them and I've gone from having what I needed to, you know, all of a sudden having to hold his order and get some more. Um, (laughs) so, so I would eventually like to, um, do my own casting if nothing else, but with four little kids and a full-time job and no idea how to do it. (laughs) I'll just muddle along now, but I think, I think last time I counted, I had over um, 600 SKUs of, of stuff, um, which is crazy since it's just a part-time thing. Yeah, it's funny because I, th- I keep clicking on things that I missed before, like the undead. I, normally, I don't know why because I'm, I'm big into monsters. Like in most war games I play, I really go for like the monster types just because I like painting them. They right. look interesting to me. So I click on the undead and I'm like, okay, so there's leaders and magic users and core magic users and core units and special units. And I keep clicking on them going, holy crap, there is more. <laughs> the the undead were kind of an interesting project. Farron did those. And um, I say, you know, I'd like, uh, I'd like some kind of undead giant. And he would send me five or six ideas. He's like, which one of these do you want to do? And I'd say, well, I kind of like them all. Let's just do them all. And so he'd, and so all of a sudden the, the undead line got, got um, massive. Um, but, uh, but again, the fun thing about it being part-time is since I'm not feeding my family with it, all the money that comes in, I can just put back into getting more sculpts done, um, which, is, which has been a great way for it to grow. Um, although in the early days, I grew the lines by doing a lot of um, commission painting for people. Um, so. So back, so going way back when you started this, you actually helped fund it with some commission painting and things of that nature in order to get it off the ground. Right. Yeah. So, um, uh, when I decided to do it, my wife and I would take walks before we had kids and, uh, we were walking once I was complaining about some of the types of figures that I wanted that no other 15 millimeter people made. And, uh, I was like, I should just get them made. And she goes, yeah, why don't you? I was like, all right. So I took and um, had a bunch of stuff that I knew I wasn't going to use, and I sold it 
on eBay. And then I went to a convention and sold it in the flea market. And I said, whatever I make from this, I'm going to hire a sculptor uh, and get it done. Um, and at Historicon, I met Roger Campbell. So he and, and then Sandy Garrity were my, my two original sculptors. Uh, and I had $5,000 and just used that to get stuff sculpted. Um, and then from there, just grew it through commission painting and, and what I made at shows. Um, so it's been kind of nice. I haven't had to put any family money into it. Um, and I pay for stuff as I go. So if I ever get tired of it, I can just walk away. <laughs> but, yeah, well, that's one of those things that I keep balancing with me, uh, trying to get my games up and off the ground. Now, I'm not doing any sculpting. I'm just doing rules and, uh, you know, pretty much PDFs and nice collector's edition books. Right. But I keep looking at it from the standpoint of like, if I start doing this out of pocket, my wife is going to murder me. Right. <laughs> yeah. What's the old, uh, what's the old joke? The best way to end up with $2 million in, in a wargaming business is to start with, uh, or best way to end up with a million dollars in a wargaming business is to start with 2 million. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it's been great. And over the years I've gotten to the point where um, I get new sculpts made and then I'm also able to, you know, buy a camera to use to take pictures or buy a nice laser printer or pay for something here and there. So, um, so it's paying for itself plus helping us out a little bit, which is nice. Yeah. That's ideally, you know, from an independent side, that's how a a lot of the people that we've talked to have approached it where they're like, you know what, I'm keeping the hobby alive. I'm keeping my passion alive. It's not coming out of my pocket per se. It's helping my family a little bit here and there. I'm not giving up my day job by any stretch. And people enjoy my stuff. And that's right. really all I care about. Right, exactly. And, and you know, having um, gone to a lot of shows um, early on, um, one of the things I found was my, my buddy, Mike, who does Rebel Minis, he and I would just have a great time the whole time, even if we weren't necessarily selling a whole bunch. Um, just because, you know, again, we had jobs and our families were going to eat, even if we had a crappy show, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you'd watch these poor guys whose livelihood depend on it. They'd just be grumpy and angry and understandably so. Um, so, but, uh, but it's been a lot of fun. At the booth, but that's <laughs> you're, you're there. <laughs> yeah, that it, it, it definitely makes, you know, all the difference in the world, you know, I, and I can tell you that from working with smaller companies all the way up to even when I was at Coolman or not, and, you know, I was selling, you know, besides their board games, you know, Dark Age and Wrath of Kings, where I could tell you there okay. are times where I, when I was at Gen Con and just that grind. Yes. And, you know, not for nothing to the listeners out there, but if I saw you at Gen Con, 90% of the time, unless you were a close personal friend of mine, I probably hated your face after three <laughs> hours of being in the exhibit hall. It yeah. had nothing to do with you. It's just that's the nature of the game where you're sitting there and it's just a grind and grind and grind and you have to be there. Yeah. So, so yeah, these a lot of the bigger shows are, yeah, dealer hall opens at nine or 10 and you're there until six or seven and, and you pretty much have to be on the whole time. Um, yeah. if, you're an, if you're an introvert like me, it's really hard to be on the whole time. <laughs> yeah. So. And I knew a lot of people that were introverts that were, you know, working shows and they're just like, why didn't I just stay home? Right. <laughs> I'm like, well, I can't help you there. I mean, we are paying you for being here, but at the same time, if I got to suffer, you got to suffer too. Right. Well, it's, and it's fun, but uh, you know, one of the things I found is that, that once I was at the shows, I'd made a lot of the contacts and, you know, we all have our lead piles. And, and so I'd see a lot of the same customers like, Oh man, I love your stuff. It's great. 
I got all the all the stuff I bought from you last year still waiting to paint. So it's like, oh, great. That doesn't help me this show. But <laughs> um, but but it's always fun to visit. And I've gotten to, to make uh, some really good friends through going to the shows. Um, and, and I haven't been to many lately, but I'd like to get back into it um, as my as my kids get a little bit older. Um, in fact, my my son, my oldest son, and I went to Origins this year, and it was fun to go just as a just as a as a uh, attendee and to walk around. And we actually got into some of the cool mini games or not, or cool minis or not uh, board games. So um, nice, nice. So, which ones did you end up playing while you were there? I mean, I I have yet to go to Origins. Out of all the shows that are out there, I have not been to Origins. So. How is that one compared to like Gen Con or Adepticon? Well, I ha- I haven't been to Gen Con though. I'd love to try to get to it at some point. Origins is um, fifteen to twenty thousand people, maybe. I can't remember the exact numbers. Um, and actually, I went for four years as a dealer, um, and always did okay. Um, but it wasn't a huge miniature gaming show. Um, so no, it's definitely a board game show. Yeah, and, and in the last years, and in the last years, it's really become really only a board gaming and card gaming show. There's very little miniature presence um, and very few miniature games. Um, so we went and uh, and uh, tried out some of the board games and had a really good time. We played uh, we played Arcadia Quest um, and got sucked into that. Um, (laughs) and then since then I got back and we ordered, uh, zombie side black plague, um, and, uh, and then playing a lot of that. So, um, it's fun stuff. And, you know, the board games are nice because you can, you can pull them out. There's no pressure for me to feel like I need to have them painted. I'm the type, if I'm playing with miniatures, like metal miniatures, I I can't play with unpainted miniatures. Um, but a board game, I feel like I can put out unpainted board game pieces and, and enjoy it. Yeah, that's well, that is definitely the big difference. You know, like if I'm, uh, you know, if you want to call it theory hammering for a new game or something like that, or like I just picked up the game, I don't mind like kind of in the comforts of my own home or somebody else's home or like off to the side in the game store. I don't mind playing with unpainted miniatures, but if I'm going to a convention or I'm, I'm going to a tournament that's being run or like an organized play event, I feel dirty if my miniatures are not painted. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, that's where I fall. Where I pull out a unit. Like, I might have 90% of my army painted except for this one unit that I just picked up, and I'm like, I'm so sorry. I know. <laughs> yeah, I can't even do it. I just, I just, I'll put it off to the side. <laughs> yeah, I don't even look them in the eye. I can't. It's just, uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, where do you game uh, in the Atlanta area? So, uh, obviously, the big one is Gigabytes Cafe. Right. Um, I haven't been there in a little bit. Uh, the wife and I just mo- moved into a, a house just this last year, and we've been doing some renovations. Matter okay. of fact, this pretty much this whole week, we just ripped apart our uh, our master bedroom and moved everything out into the guest bedroom, and now that one's all set. And we painted that one, and we're sleeping in the guest bedroom until we get the new furniture for the master bedroom right. on Friday, and then we're replacing the French doors and we just got a brand new dog that you just heard a few minutes ago. trying <laughs> to in. So yeah, we're all over the place. Um, but uh, past that, uh, you know, obviously gigabytes is the biggest store in the area. It's probably, it's probably the best store to get a lot of the player base at for 
all sorts of different games, and a lot of people love playing there. Um, there's one that just opened up not too long ago that's very close to me called Joe's Garage. It's about five minutes okay. from me, so um, it's a little bit easier to get to. But, uh, you know, Joe's a great guy. Nothing against his store. It's just his store is very, very, very small. Yeah. Um, I, honestly, he can maybe get, if you're looking at, like, a your standard six-foot-by-four-foot table, he can maybe get six, you know, three tables, six people back in there okay. playing yeah. at any one time. He, just, he doesn't have the space for the gaming. And that's hard because, yeah, I, I don't know how, how, uh, how storefronts do it. Um, I guess it's mostly through magic tournaments from what I hear um, for a lot of the gaming stores, um, just because you can find stuff online for so, so quickly and so cheaply and no game store can cover everything that somebody wants. Yeah. You know, and that's a topic that we brought up numerous times, you know, obviously skirmish supremacy, we talk to a lot of different companies. Most of them are independent guys, very similar to you where it's like, you kind of look at it and go, I'm probably never getting into a game store. People will just order from me online. They'll, you know, get my stuff on eBay or wherever else it's, it's put out there. And you guys kind of order the same way. And it's the hardest part about a game store is the fact that it is a retail space with uns like a space that cannot be sold. Right. I, I guess the best way to put it, you have, cause you need to have all this extra square footage. Right. For table space that essentially is not making you profit. You have nothing on the shelves. You know, you have no shelves that are filling that area with products right. that you sell to people. So that is always the biggest challenge. And that is why I'm a firm believer in kind of taking the European method, especially on the miniature side of things. I, I can't answer to anything else. The miniatures on this, especially if you, know anything about Europe and I'm sure we have listeners out there that can say yes yes okay we, we've heard all this before you know they're in Europe going yeah you're exactly right um stores in Europe really outside of like a couple of small card tables for board game demos they don't have space in their store for people to play games if they do <laughs> have it, it is a demo table so like even if you were to get into something like Kings of War or you know Warhammer 40k you know games where it takes a a lot of miniatures they maybe have a a three foot by four foot table set up with a few demo armies to move some miniatures do like here's the move phase the shoot phase and the close combat phase now you do it to me we'll do this one more time this is the basics of the game then they'll direct you to the wall and say this is where you can pick it up we don't have space to play here but we have these game clubs that all order from us, they support us, and they play elsewhere. Yeah. And I, I honestly think that that is probably the best way today in order, in order to really support a store. You know, because the thing it is is that stores are starting to shrink because of rising costs. Right. And, you know, internet sales are never going to go away, regardless of what everybody thinks. Yes, obviously, you should always shop local. If they have it there – shop local if you go in there wanting to buy war machine and you find the the unit that you want to buy buy it there don't go in there see it and be like oh yeah that's the unit i really wanted now that i look at the box i'll go on miniature market and get it 30 percent off don't be that guy or girl <laughs> or whatever don't be that person because at that point you're just being an asshole if, if it's there shop local 
If they can't get their hands on it, then yes, order online. If they can get their hands on it, ask them to special order it. But, you know, for the most part, that that's, that I honestly see it having to swing that way, where either people are going to buy the small specialty stuff online, they'll still go to the stores for the, the main big stuff, but uh, I, I don't see a lot of stores being able to open and have a ton of, like, in-store play space. I just think the idea of, like, a game club has to become normal to people in their heads. Right. Well, and just, you know, since I don't do my own sculpting and especially don't do my own mold making casting, you know, for me to try to get into a store when you have to offer a distributor 60% off, yeah. all of us, all of a sudden I'm not making any money and no, you're making um, pennies the prices that you have. I was going to say you're making what, maybe 10, 20 cents. Yeah. A, a unit. Yeah. And, and at 60% off, I might be making two or three cents on a figure. Um, and, and so it's just, you know, especially part-time, it's just not worth it. Um, so if you're doing your own casting and you don't have that cost, then it might make a little more sense to try to do at some point. Um, but right now with the internet, I can, I can do my own occasional 20% off sale and still be in good shape. Um, and I've got about as much business as I can handle with my, with my life load. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's always that you're married, you have the honeydew, right? <laughs> that dreaded thing that's always like, it never, it never shrinks. It never goes away. And you can crumble that bitch up and throw it out. And there, it always reappears with right. more stuff on it. <laughs> and now that you're a homeowner, you know that very well. <laughs> oh, damn it. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, def- it's definitely something that, that's been a challenge for me on that side of things. Yeah, and and the projects never go. There's always something. I, I I never had any problem renting, and then all of a sudden I own a house and everything starts going wrong. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that is that is definitely something that I've noticed. You start noticing those little nitpicky things. Yes. <laughs> so I, another line that I, I saw on here that I wanted to point out is you actually have some uh, twenty millimeter woodland warriors. You got some mice men, some weasel men, raccoons, hare, fox, otter, squirrels, rats, a lot of rodents. Yes, indeed. Yeah, those are wolves. Oh, wait, no, there they are. They're in the others. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's been a really fun line to do. Um, You know, growing up, uh, I always loved um, the Narnia books. and, uh, you know, Wind in the Willows, I, I've always loved talking animals, got into the Brian Jakes Red Wall series. Such um, a good series. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, you know, they're virtually all the same book, but they're all fun and different enough that they're great reads. Um, and, uh, in fact, with my, with my two oldest, when they were little, we got the TV series. They had three seasons, and each season was a book. Um, and so um, – so Bob Ollie just did a great job with those figures and I kept getting more made and, and we were doing a lot off of conversions. Um, so that's been a really fantastic line to do. Um, nice. So yeah, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, they, they're definitely really cool and they, they have a lot of personality again for being 15 mil. I don't know. Maybe I'm just so used to seeing 15 mil that's done all kind of flat and, you know, not a lot of detail. That's probably one of the big things that's always kind of turned me off to the idea of using 15 mil in games, but this stuff looks great for what it is. You know, it's just 
It's got detail. Obviously, these are all single cast. I can't. I, I imagine most of your stuff is single cast. Most of it is, yeah. And and the great thing about the the even though I have it as twenty millimeter, it it actually one of the things I found is as you deal with different sculptors, um, is a lot of people ask how high is it? You know, is it actually fifteen or is it seventeen or is it twenty? And that's certainly a factor. But one of the factors I found people don't often think about is the bulk. So, um, so, so Bob Ollie's stuff might be the same height as some of my 15 stuff, but it's so bulky because that's his style that it actually works better with some different scales. So with the 20 millimeter Woodland Warriors, um, I've used it and I know some other people have used it as, as, you know, uh, 28 millimeter. So I have under the 28 millimeter line, I have, um, sort of the not Narnia kids, uh, the, the Kings and Queens, um and some of the um like there's Definitely a reaper kids. Yeah. <laughs> there's a reaper cheap type mouse that would work perfectly as reaper cheap with 28 millimeter figures. Um so those those woodland warriors actually work on a wide array of of sizes and scales. But the bulkiness they paint up like 28 millimeter. Nice. Which I could definitely see. I mean, let's think that there's no such thing as a intel or a you know a human equivalent sentient bipedal animal that uses swords and axes. So right. <laughs> they can be whatever size you want them to be. Damn it! <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> That's the great thing about orcs and goblins is uh, you know whatever size they are, they all mix and match. It's, it's harder with humans, but uh, but with some of the monster races or with the animals, yeah there aren't any real walking, talking foxes out there. So how tall would they be? <laughs> right. You could be like, Oh, you know, they're, they're this size and you're going to deal with it. <laughs> so do you have any uh, plans on uh, branching out to other games? I know that uh, obviously pride of lions is your primary one, but do you have any plans on designing other war games for uh, some of the other stuff to be used? You know, I'm always playing around with stuff right now. I'm kind of playing around with some um, skirmish type rules um, for singles, especially with the dungeon crawl stuff I have Um, and uh, do a lot. Like I've mentioned him several times, Mike Reniger, who's up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, who has rebel minis. um, He and I have done a ton of stuff with mighty armies and uh, we're going to do some joint projects um, using those rules and, and releasing some, uh, some lines and, and uh, you know, um, books with that rule set. Um, but again, it, it's something I'd love to do more with and just don't have a lot of time. Um, now, my dad, who's the, the real rule writer, um, we do have, and I need to put it on the website, a set of Alamo rules um, that he wrote. I don't have any Alamo figures, but, but he's always loved the Alamo. We got the 15 millimeter um, blue moon Alamo. He's written up set of rules for that, um, but talk about a niche within a niche within a niche. <laughs> um, and uh, and so yeah, I've got a few things out there. Um, as my son, my oldest son, who's eleven, you know, his buddies are starting to get into it. So I'm just kind of making some quick, dirty uh, skirmish rules um, that uh, that we can play around with. That basically they can learn real quickly to kind of get their foot in the door and then branch out from there. Um, so I, I mostly like playing a lot of the old classics. I've got, um, 
I've got some Battle of Valor miniatures um, that uh, are a little bit bigger than mine, so I've been painting them up uh, as their own armies to use with the old battle system uh, rule set that uh, TSR did. Um, wow, that's going back. It's going way back, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, I don't have anything really significant planned um, as far as release um, for myself at this point. Um, my dad's going to work on some more supplements for Pride Alliance, kind of campaign rules um, and campaign settings uh, will probably be the, the biggest stuff coming from us. Nice. So you, you're definitely going to be expanding upon that and getting more <coughs> in order to uh, allow it all to uh, kind of, I guess, blossom into something a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we've got tons and tons of ideas. It's just a matter of, of, getting them all on paper. And, and I think probably my dad has three or four projects that are somewhere between 50 and 80% done. And, you know, getting that last 20, 20% finished is, uh, is the grind work. Gotcha. Okay. So he, he's definitely, he's definitely out there knocking it all out. Yeah. Yeah. So the next Pride Alliance supplement, the first one was with the Wildwood and the, and the Moonglade, the Goblins. Uh, the next one he's he's almost done with is um, the Wood Elves versus the Undead. Um, so uh, so that should be a fun a fun set when it comes out. Nice, nice. So do you have any? Uh, I, I noticed the other other one that you had in there as well. As far as well, I mean, you have so much. So I mean, I could sit here and go, oh yeah, this one too, and this one too. I noticed that you also have a lot of stuff that is uh, Dark Age historical. Yes. So um, with that, I noticed that you you had some DBA armies and uh, things of that nature. Um, do you do you see a lot of those selling? I, I historicals to me, I either see like this small, really dedicated people to historical play, um, and there's people that want to dabble in it, but they it almost seems like they almost never pull the trigger. Right. Now I might be wrong on that. That's just something that I've kind of noticed in historical wargaming do you find that those sell fairly well for you um they they do they're definitely worth having um most of the shows i went to early on um or the three biggest ones i tended to go to were uh historicon fallen and cold wars which are hmgs east shows and uh for a while they were all up in lancaster pennsylvania um and they had a real active dba and hot community that would play. Um, and there were a couple of, of, um, discussion board websites, um, with DBA players. So, so I, I, I sell a fair amount. I don't know how many people are actually using them for DBA, um, versus just having a nice set, inexpensive set of, uh, armies that they can buy. Um, but I definitely sell some, the, uh, um, there's a skirmish set that I have up there. Is it Ducks Britannica? Um, can't remember. I haven't actually played the game, but it's two. It's uh, two fat lardies in the UK have a have a rule set out of Dark Age skirmish, and uh, I sell a fair amount of those as well. Um, again, I don't know if they're buying it for the game or just to have a skirmish set. Um, but uh, but yeah, they're definitely they've definitely been good sellers for me. Nice. Yeah, because I've always wondered on that. Um, again, a lot of that is probably just some of my own ignorance on the 
historical side of things. Cause I, I know a lot of people play well at a lot of the HMGS shows, they play a lot of either DBA or it's flames of war. Um, both actions starting to get in there, but they, they pretty much, they don't expand too much out from that, from what I've seen. No, a few years ago, um, when field of glory came out, I sold tons of dark age armies for Field of Glory, but I think that game has kind of um, fallen by the wayside to a large degree. Um, so I don't know if there's you know, a real active tournament group beyond now the DBA crowd. Um, of course, the great thing about the DBA armies is they're not very big. I think each one is a maximum of 12 stands. Um, so it's very small army. So a lot of the guys that have DBA armies might have 20, 25, 30 of them. Um, that they switch out and they do a lot of theme tournaments um, and, and a fair amount they'll do, you know, a, an age of Arthur theme or a, you know, a 1066 Viking Saxons and Normans theme. So um, whenever they do those, I, I notice a spike in my sales. Nice. Yeah. And I don't know. Like I I've, I've always wanted to dabble in the historical side of miniatures and, uh, you know, obviously, Kings of War just came out with their historical supplement, which is awesome. There's a lot of great stuff in there. I'm actually doing a, a Spartan-focused army. Oh, cool. Um, but, like, I to me, historical feels right in, like, 10 and 15 millimeter. I don't know. Like, for mass battle, it feels right, right in that scale compared to 28 mil. Um, absolutely, because you can get so many figures on the table. Um, and you can get a lot of terrain out there. Um, that's that's why I love the 15s because the detail is so good. You can have really detailed sculptings, but you can get a lot of them on the table, and they just paint up faster. Um, you know, so so you don't have to paint them as closely, and you paint them faster, and they still look real good. Um, and I use the uh, it's called the dip method, which it's really just a, a wood stain that you that you paint on. A lot of people use it and. Again, it's it's a little bit cheating, but it just makes the details pop out. And so I, th- I think the figures can look real good um, beyond what you're actually doing as far as time. Are you really going to do an eight-layer shade on 15-millimeter model? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, you're going to be there forever trying to pull it off and be like, okay, so there's the base coat and first layer shade. Damn it. That's it. And try it again. Damn it. Okay. And you're just going to keep going back to it over exactly. and over again. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, so you can you can make them look really good um, without a ton of extra work, uh, which I which I really like. Um, and then for those that you really want to, you can put the time into getting the detail on them. But you can get just good line troopers um, really fast. Um, so, and the great thing about Dark Ages is Dark Age armies so easily convert into fantasy armies. So, you know, you got a historical Viking army and you throw in a couple of frost giants and some wolves and boom, you got a fantasy Viking army. You've got Northmen or whatever else. Right. You call them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I can definitely see how that that's an easy crossover. And, you know, again, it, it's easier on the pocketbooks for a lot of people too, which is always a big thing for, you know, unless, unless people just really are used to that Warhammer fantasy. They're like, what do you mean? I can get an army for less than 1200 bucks. Right. <laughs> well, and it's interesting seeing the spending, the spending habits of the various genres so that, so that 
you know, fantasy gamers tend to be willing to pay more per figure than historical gamers are, um, for example. Um, and uh, I'm not really, I don't sell enough sci-fi to know where they fall in it, but, but there's definitely a higher threshold for what fantasy players will accept cost per figure than some of the other genres. I think a lot of that was just, you know, at, at the one time, like the only fantasy game out there was Warhammer Fantasy Battles. And it was like, either you played that or you didn't play anything at all. So you right. kind of got used to that price and you're like, oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Or, or you had the, you know, even the Ralph Parthas, the Grenadiers, the, the Reaper early on, you're buying one-off figures for a game. And so they'll charge a couple of bucks as opposed to the historical gamers where you're buying, you know, 30 and you can't pay two or three dollars, you know, where you're building an army of 28 millimeter historicals. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a, a whole whole different ballgame at that point. So one of the other things I noticed, too, this is this was interesting on your site. And I, I wanted to kind of bring it up closer to the end here is you do a lot with out of it's it's a program for those that don't know it's called out of darkness and it it's actually a it's atlanta focused but it, it deals with ending the child sex slave industry and exploitation in atlanta now i will fully admit i don't know much about this other than you know kind of what you have posted on your site in that one descriptor that's really all i've heard about it but you know kind of i guess take take a moment and fill us in how did you get involved with this um so um, a guy that I uh, used to go to church with, he, he moved to a different church, but um, he was just struck by the amount of um, just trafficking and prostitution um, going on in the Atlanta area. And um, particularly with the, with the child sex trafficking um, in the Atlanta area, if I remember correctly, I think there are um, – each month, roughly 500 girls under like under the age of 18 are um, raped by roughly 2,000 men who drive in from the suburbs or uh, in, in, into the downtown area, um, which is a dad of little girls is just just mind boggling and, and horrifying. Um, I'm sure you want to throw some other choice words in there. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and Atlanta is actually a major hub for sex trafficking because of the international airport and the three interstates that all come through. Um, and, uh, and so um, Out of Darkness um, works with a, a – there's a lot of different um, anti-sex trafficking groups that each take different components. What Out of Darkness has ended up doing is setting up a 24-hour um, – hotline that uh, women can call um, and explore the option of getting out of, of the prostitution lifestyle. And, and most of the prostitutes out there are brought into it as children. They start off as, as child sex um, slaves and, and then move on into adulthood. Um, and I just saw on their website the other day that they have, they've had the thousand rescue in the, think five or six years that they've been doing it. Um, and so they, these women call the, the hotline and explore the option of getting out. 
Um, Out of Darkness sends a team with a, a, a man and a woman. Um, the man sort of provides a presence for, for those that might want to disrupt the rescue. Uh, and the woman provides sort of a, a safe, a safe face um, to come and they'll pick up the, the women and take them to a home where they can begin the process of healing and recovery. Um, so it's, it's a really cool, really cool organization. Um, and it's been a privilege to get to work with them and, and be a part of that. Yeah. I, you know, I heard about it, but honestly, like since moving to the Atlanta area, cause I, you know, most of the listeners out there know that I'm originally from the Midwest where, you know, child, child, you know, sex trafficking, things like that. It's like, we hear about it and it's something that's done in action movies and like somebody's going in and throwing right. grenades behind them as they pull out a busload of children and whatnot. But obviously we, we all know that it's real. It's just, now that I'm closer to it and I'm hearing more about it, like it, I didn't realize that Atlanta was such a, a hotbed mm-hmm. for this issue. And you know, like I said, I heard about it before, but I, I honestly, I didn't know much about it. So it's really cool that, you know, you're actually uh, from what I just read is like, you're, you're taking 10% of each sale. Right. And it goes directly towards donation. Right. For it. And, and, you know, that's been, again, a real neat thing to be able to do with it. But what's been exciting is the number of times. I mean, I, I know some of my customers, but, but I've had some people in the gaming community who um, I remember two times where I got an order. I may have gotten a $30 order. And then all of a sudden I got a random $150 PayPal payment. And the note just said, please give this to Out of Darkness. So, so these gamers are just, just a couple times that just sent money to some guy they haven't met to trusting me to, to then pass it on to this organization. Um, so that's been cool to see people in the gaming community really get on board and get excited about it as well. Um, because if there's, if there's an issue that can unite any decent person, it's not having little kids getting, <laughs> getting raped. So, well, yeah, I mean, let's face it, even in prison, they say that like, the one that's going to get his ass kicked first is the one that like violates children. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. The fact that you're here even from like murderers. <laughs> yeah, even the worst of the worst take those guys down, right? They're like, you did what? Yeah, you're a dead man. <laughs> like, so. I know I'm going to hell for what I did, but you have a special place. I'm going to send you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so it's it's been it's been neat to be able to give back in that way. Yeah, it, that is definitely something that's, you know, it, it's commendable. I, like, I, I don't normally hear of a, a lot of companies that go out of their way to just automatically donate some of their, you know, they, they'll set money aside throughout the year. But the fact that you're just saying, look, every single time somebody buys something from me, 10% of it is going right to this charity and no questions asked. Yeah, And the fact that, you know, on top of that too, you have gamers that are just donating you money and saying this needs to go there. Like, my order was this, but here's this extra money for this specifically. That's that's a really really cool thing, and you know, in a way, it, it sets you as a, a great example and a leader in, you know, moving people towards you know. I don't want to see more decency in the gaming community because now I just make it sound like we're all a bunch of shitlords. Really <laughs> not. It's just it's one of those things that where you know a lot of, a lot of people get into like war gaming and fantasy things to escape the reality of things going on around them. But the fact that you're just like embracing it 
and you know just saying no this is this is you know it's cool that you're playing with my small rat men and orcs and goblins and all that but like there are real shit lords in this world that need to be fucking dealt with right right um yeah so that's that's been a lot of fun and a privilege to do so um yeah thank you awesome yeah well we are getting close to the end of the podcast so do you want to take a few minutes uh, plug your website, plug your Twitter, plug Facebook. Where can we find you at? Yeah, sure. Uh, my website is uh, splinteredlightminis.com. Um, I have a Twitter account that I need to use more but don't. <laughs> I think it's just Splintered Light Minis. I don't know. <laughs> Twitter is just a sea of white noise to me. <laughs> it is. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> um, I do have a, uh, a blog uh um, splinteredlightminis.blogspot.com um, and then on Facebook Splintered Light Miniatures um, and uh, I try to uh, I'm trying to do more with that you know um, social media has its advantages and disadvantages um, apparently I've started drawing a lot of the spammers onto mine so trying oh. to deal with those yeah <laughs> they're like rats you can't get rid of them all no um, <laughs> Um, but I'm also uh, happy for people to send me emails with any questions they have at uh, splinteredlightminis at gmail.com. Nice. Awesome. Well, David, thanks so much for coming on tonight and talking to us about everything you're doing over at Splintered Light. And uh, again, I, I personally want to say thank you on behalf of, on behalf of Skirmish Supremacy for going out of your way and donating to such a worthy cause. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Well, normally this is where Nick would uh, say some extra little shit in the background, but because he's sick and he's on mute and I'm not going to let him, <laughs> we're going to wrap up episode 50 of Skirmish Supremacy. We'll see you folks next time. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to another episode of Skirmish Supremacy. To see more of the antics that Nick and I do, you can check us out on Facebook at Skirmish Supremacy. We also have Twitter, which we can be reached at Skirmish Supreme because apparently Skirmish Supremacy does not fit in Twitter. And if you want to email us directly, you can reach us at tim at skirmishsupremacy.com or nick at skirmishsupremacy.com. Thanks for listening.